Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In lecture 31, the dissection of the psychical personality, after having distinguished between three agencies within the psyche or the personality, namely the superego, the ego, and the id, Sigmund Freud is going to bring up this problematic of the ego attempting to serve different masters. Now, a little bit before that, he talks about the ego as having this tendency toward synthesis, right? This is what distinguishes the ego from the id, a combination and unification in its mental processes, organization, a certain kind of agency allowing the ego to select, to choose, to prioritize. And this is precisely what causes a lot of anguish for the ego. And here Freud brings up this biblical proverb about serving two masters at the same time. And then he says, the poor ego has things even worse. Why? It, it serves three severe masters and does what it can to bring their claims and demands into harmony with one another. So the ego is this, if we want to personify, it's this poor guy who's got, you know, three screwed up friends, all of whom want different things. And he's trying to make everybody happy at the same time. And it, can, it can't be done. It can be done more or it can be done less, but it's always something that when it happens, it's a rather unstable equilibrium that isn't going to stay that way. And it requires retuning. Why won't it happen? Well, because the claims made by these three different masters are incompatible and, you know, divergent. They might come together at certain points, you know, when everything aligns just perfectly, but usually that's not going to be the case. And at this point, we might say, wait a second, what three masters are you talking about? We've only got three agencies within the personality. Freud's got superego, ego, and id. Superego and id, okay, we can see how they can be not just distinct, but also conflictual or antagonistic or, you know, demanding upon the ego. But what's the third master? Well, it's the external world. It's the outside. It's other people. It's society. It's the physicality of objects. It's the entire system that we live within of, of space and time. And the id doesn't respect this at all. The id isn't actually connected with it. The ego arises, as we've seen, out of the id as a way of taking into account the external world and not allowing the id to get itself killed by willy-nilly pursuing the pleasure principle, you know, against dangers, right? So he says, these claims are divergent, often seem compatible. No wonder that the ego so often fails in its task. Its three tyrannical masters are the external world, the superego, and the id. Now, in calling them tyrannical, what is Freud getting at? You know, none of them can be really reasoned with. In their core, they're always going to be demanding or imposing. And the best the ego can do is attain some kind of, at the time, modus operandi in, in working with them. He also talks about them 
uh, generating anxiety. And this is really quite interesting. Instead of just talking about anxiety in general, he tells us that each one of them generates its own particular mode of anxiety. He says, if the ego is obliged to admit its weakness, it breaks out in anxiety. What kinds? Realistic anxiety regarding the external world. Moral anxiety regarding the superego and its demands and, you know, judgments, right? And also a neurotic anxiety with respect to the id and the instincts, desires, cajolings, whatever it is that the id is putting forth, not being able to attain what it is that that part of your personality wants. And so he talks about the poor ego. This is a nice turn of phrase being driven by the id, right? The id is telling it, give me this. I want this confined by the superego that says, don't do that, you dirty little pig, and then attacks it, and then repulsed by reality. And you might say, why would reality be repulsive? Well, because so much of reality has hard edges and doesn't conform to the thing that's driving us from the id, the, the pleasure principle, or even the demands of the, the superego. I mean, reality is what reality is, and it's not as malleable and controllable as we'd like it to be. We should also mention here too that a little bit earlier Freud told us that the superego that we are getting from within ourselves is often also the product of the superego of other people, our you know, authority figures. So when we're talking about the external world, we are also talking about dealing with other people's superegos as well as their egos, right? So how does this conflict play out? And here it's not as if there's just like, you know, a triangle with superego, id, and external world here. It's rather that there's a dyad of external world and ego, external world and id rather, that the ego is positioned between and has to try to reconcile. There's also some relations between the ego and the id itself. And then we've got the superego over here doing a different thing that is connected with these other two poles, but isn't exactly opposed in the same way. So the ego mediates, as Freud says, between the id and the external reality. And he devotes some discussion to how the ego arises out of the id precisely to do this. So imagine like a four-year-old kid, right? At, at that age, if any of you have ever had kids or babysat them, you know that the main job that you have is to keep them from killing themselves or maiming themselves or hurting somebody else or doing all sorts of other destructive and potentially irrecoverable damage to themselves and other things. And that's what the ego is doing. The ego is connected with the perceptual apparatus. It's also connected with understanding how causality works within the world. So you learn lessons like don't touch the hot plate, don't stick your finger in the mouse trap, you know, all those sorts of things. And you also learn about what's pleasurable and what you would want to pursue, but not to take too much of this particular pleasure. You know, I remember when I was a kid eating way too many red raspberries, getting sick on them and, that, and then not wanting to eat them for about two years. I also did that with potato chips at a party one time when I was a kid as well. 
well. So, you know, you learn these, these little lessons. So the ego is mediating between all these desires that the id has to just have a good time all, all the time. And one way Freud frames this is the ego brings in the reality principle to oppose it to and modify the id's pleasure principle. The pleasure principle is let's get as much fun as we can. Let's have as much enjoyment, though that sort of stuff is what I want to do. I want to avoid anything that's irritating or boring or harmful in the sense of hurting me, right? But the ego can say, no, no, there are things that are hurting you that actually feel good. And there are also things that don't feel good, but they're very good for you. So like the ego is what can get you to the gym to keep exercising or to take the medicine that you need to take or to keep you at work, working beyond the two hours that work was fun so that you can make a paycheck and bring it home and pay your insurance and put food on the table and pay your rent, all those sorts of things. The ego is the mediator between external reality, how, whatever the external reality looks like, and the id. And they're both making their own kinds of demands. Here he talks more about the kinds of demands or commands that the id is giving. It tells the ego what it wants. And then the ego goes about trying to find out if it's possible to actually attain those enjoyments or, you know, avoid those distresses and, you know, what the best ways would be. So you could say the id supplies some of the ends, but it's not conceiving them as ends. It's just saying, give me this. And then the ego is trying to figure out, okay, I want to do that. How do I best attain it? And it's also dealing with the fact that the id gives you all sorts of contradictory demands. It wants to get high. It wants to get laid. It wants to lay in the sun. It wants to do all these different things all at the same time. And the ego's like, whoa, whoa, one, one at a time. Which, which one am I supposed to satisfy? Because if I satisfy this one, you're not going to get this one, right? The ego has this controlling you know, not a very strict sense, right? Sort of function. And, you know, the, the ego attempts as best as it can to satisfy those. It also rationalizes, as Freud says, some of the things that the id desires, you know, so the id can be quite perverse, might not fit in well with the rest of one's society or one's environment. And the ego says, okay, you can have that, but you can't do that. That's that. No, forget that. Right. And then the id doesn't like that. So there's all of that. And then the ego also can control, like he says, some of the instincts, not all of them, but, but at least some of them. And it tries to make itself an object, as, as Freud says, for the id to attract what he calls the id's libido to itself, meaning the ego is trying to get the id to not just give it ideas about what it wants to do, but it wants to siphon off some of that energy for the ego's own purposes as well, some higher purposes. So that's one main issue. And then we've got the superego. The superego, as Freud says, sets down standards for the ego's conduct. And these standards are usually unrealistic and imperious and, and generally can't be completely satisfied. And part of why they can't be satisfied is because the superego thinks that it's the only one who gets to to boss the ego around, not taking into account that the id and external world are also making their demands on this poor ego. And the ego might actually have some legitimate demands of, or wishes or desires of its own. The superego just keeps saying, thou shalt, thou shalt not. 
And it keeps repeating these sorts of things without taking it into account. It's not a realistic faculty. And then when the ego inevitably fails to do what the superego wants, it punishes it with feelings of inferiority and guilt. In some cases, it might actually, you know, take the form of negative self-talk. You're no good, you dirty, degenerate, lazy, you know, and there's kind of a whipping and lashing going on within the, the person themselves. So the ego is stuck between all of these different things. And actually at the very end of this section, Freud tells us something important about what psychoanalysis is supposed to be doing. He tells us that the, the intention of psychoanalysis is to strengthen the ego, to make it more independent of the superego, to widen its field of perception and enlarge its organization so it can appropriate fresh portions of the id and make more of our life subject to our own conscious desires, deliberation, all of that. It, it's not to totally make the ego the controller of everything. It's just trying to strengthen it to some degree against these tyrannical masters that tend to produce anxiety, guilt, and other negative affects. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.